Osiris. folks david goldstein i am brian brinkman you're listening to a special bonus episode of the beyond the pond podcast generally speaking this is a podcast in which brian and myself utilize the music of fish as a means of introducing the listener to other music because we love fish we are fish fans the problem with fish fans is they get myopic as you are well aware they can recount Dates, set lists, favorite songs, favorite jams, everything revolving around their favorite band. Then you say, hey, man, what do you think about the latest album from the band Wild Beasts? And they'll say, what the hell are you talking about? Like Wild Beasts on Lot? And you say, no, man, we're trying to do something about that. (laughs) We absolutely are. If you guys joined us last month as we started our countdown of our 10 favorite records of each year of the decade we did 2010 we're now into 2011 uh we're counting down our 10 favorite records of this year talking a little bit about them what we remember from when they came out who we were as listeners at the time and kind of working our way towards the end of the 2010s what a decade it has been in uh wow we both became dads and uh the world maybe who we don't know there's still 11 months left in the year as of recording, uh, hmm. I guess eight months left in the year uh, when this publishes or nine or something like that. Um, the world could end is my point. We have no idea what's going to happen. So hope it, it has been quite an intense, I hope it does. Yeah, it it's been quite an intense decade. Um, so jumping into 2011 here, Dave, what, uh, what do you remember about music, about kind of where you were as a fan of music and just kind of as a person in 2011? Goodness, I don't recall much about 2011, except that I only saw one fish show in 2011, 1230, 1230, 2011. Good Piper, not a very good show. I remember I had um, wanted to go to Bethel Woods, but instead I went to my cousin. She got married that weekend up in Northampton because she was a Smith graduate. I remember walking around Northampton, going to some nice craft beer bars and walking around the Smith University campus, uh, Smith College campus. But otherwise, aside from the fact that looking at my list, most of these bands I still listen to, and most of them um, still exist in some form, I can't remember shit about 2011. (laughs) I remember I had, for the first four months of the year, the worst job I've ever had. Uh, And then I transitioned into a much better job, uh, cooking at a really cool restaurant in Portland, met some awesome people, met... uh, Brian Lee Weaver this year, the chef at Butcher and Bee, who's one of our close friends, um, ran my first marathon in 2011 and um, just kind of got settled in the Pacific Northwest, which is where I thought I was going to live from uh, the start of the year until uh, at least the very end of the year. I thought I was going to stay there and 
probably for much longer. Uh, we were we were pretty happy in Portland, uh, even though my wife and I made no money and lived in a tiny, tiny one bedroom apartment. Um, but we had each other. We had a dog, and we biked everywhere. And I listened to a lot of music. I only saw two fish shows that that year. I saw the two gourd shows because fish just kind of decided in 2011 to not really tour the West coast and definitely not really tour the Northwest. I actually visited Portland, Oregon in 2011. So I could have passed you on the street. That's very, very strange. I uh, would have loved to have uh, gone back in time and seen, uh, seen our faces knowing that we were about to start a podcast. <laughs> I remember going to, I went to Clyde common, had oh, yeah. some nice cocktails Goodness, what else did I do in Portland? Went to Pock Pock, of course. We drove up the coast to go to Cannon Beach. And we were eating um, blackberries from a blackberry bush. I had a fun time in Portland. Went to, what is that brewery? Upright Brewing, which yep. I remember it was in like the basement of some futuristic building right across the street from the Rose Garden. And you walked into the building. It was on a weekend. It looked totally abandoned. You go down an elevator, and there's like a swinging tap room. And you're like, oh, okay. This isn't a secret. People know about it. So, yeah, that was the last time I was in Portland, Maine, was 2011. Portland, anyway, Oregon. yes, Portland, Oregon. <laughs> Portland, Oregon. Anyhow, jumping in to what... Um, my top 10 albums were in that year. Again, I took this list from, um, I talked about last bonus episode I wrote for a website called Coke Machine Glow. We had year-end features, so it was still posted. So I just took um, my 10 from where I was at in 2011. So my number 10 was The Horrors, Skying. Horrors are a British rock band. A lot of people kind of refer to as record collector rock because they draw from like the best of post-punk, the best of shoegaze. Some of their stuff kind of sounds like John Hughes soundtracks from the 80s. Um, I know this album had a very like John Hughes uh, sort of like Tears for Fears, aha sheen to it, especially the big single Still Life, which was a fantastic song. But yeah, the Horrors are kind of like a, a band I mentioned in the last episode, Foles, and that they're, um, I think they're, on their fifth album and they've actually been a pretty unique pretty successful uh pretty successful british rock band over the past 10 years and i know their album that came out in 2009 being primary colors is one of my favorite albums of the past 15 years still their best record if you enjoy post-punk and shoegaze and think that you might enjoy what dave goldstein listens to get primary colors by the horrors holy shit but this was a very good follow-up record. So my number 10 is a record that um, I have a slight bit of regret for this being on my list now. I, this has definitely fallen off of uh, my listening over the last nine years, and I really haven't connected in any way of any of this artist's music since then, aside from, I think, his record in 2016, and that's James Blake's debut album, uh, self-titled. Um I absolutely loved and I still love the EPs that he released throughout 2010. And I remember there was a ton of anticipation and hype going into this record being released. I mean, it was released in February uh, or January at some point. It was a, definitely a winter release and it definitely sounds like winter in the North, Pacific Northwest. Um, 
definitely some moments on it that I still like. And I, when I revisited it a couple weeks ago, I um, found myself, you know, definitely being brought into the, the overall songwriting, but it's not one of my favorite records um, by a long shot uh, as the decade has continued. But um, definitely listened to this a lot in 20, 2011 and it hung around there in my top 10. I hate James Blake. Sorry. <laughs> I kind of figured that. <laughs> so I have for my number nine, somewhat controversial record, The Strokes. The album is called Angles. This is uh, the fourth Strokes album, supposedly recorded under duress, as it wishes to say, I guess the band would send instrumentals to Julian Casablancas, and he would record vocals differently when they weren't in the same room and it was supposedly a pretty stressful way to make like 35 minutes of music but I think this album is great it has one of my very favorite stroke songs in the opening track Machu Picchu and it's kind of a way for the strokes to move forward it has a bunch of rinky dink 80s keyboards but all the hooks are intact and I think it's actually a much better album than the third strokes album first impressions of earth um albums kind of been forgotten by history i mean when it comes down to the strokes only the first two albums are essential everything else is kind of just like window dressing for hardcore fans almost kind of uh like oasis in the sense that so long as they just play the first two records they can headline festivals for the next 25 years <laughs> but i think angles is underrated overlooked and i think if you went back and heard it you would be pleasantly surprised so my number nine is uh the first of two uh appearances by this artist uh here as his alter ego the caretaker uh an empty bliss beyond this world and this is a album that we talked about and I had no idea what Beyond the Pond uh, episode. Um, that's how far we've got into this thing that I just forget when we feature these this stuff. But this is a record. Um, Leland Kirby, the artist uh, behind the Caretaker, um, basically took old records from the 30s and 40s, uh, like dancehall, slower, uh, classical music, and um, slowed it down repeated specific specific moments in it um kind of in this very droney way as a way of kind of commenting on alzheimer's and the sense of memory loss and memory kind of weaving in and out of our consciousness and it just the, the concept of it really fascinated me it fit really well into the drone ambient type of music that i was listening to at the time uh, which you'll hear some more of throughout the rest of this list but this is definitely a record that um felt like a, a, a moment in time for me but uh, i've gone back and re-listened to it and it just it's kind of one of those albums i can live in it doesn't really have like singles or songs per se it's just like one full piece that i like so for my number eight album it's tune yards who kill tune yards of course being the one woman project of meryl garbus I think actually uh, the bass player is now an official member of Tune Yards as of their most recent album. I Can Feel You Creep Into My Private Life, which I didn't think was terribly good, unfortunately. But this album, Who Kill, is awesome. I remember when I first heard the first single off of this album, Business, which is, I think, still one of the best Tune Yards songs to date. 
did a double take. I'm like, what the hell is that? This is like an update on like classic Talking Heads, kind of like shot through with some really awesome samples and nip snacking, snapping beats and lyrics. Just an exemplary song, had a really great video as well. And uh, this whole album to me is the best Tune Yards experience. And the one she put out after that, Nicky Knack, was pretty good. And like I said, I don't love the most recent one, but this is a pure, unadulterated tune yard. You know, she plays the drums, and she loops the drums. She has the bass player. It's just, um, if you're not familiar with it, I think that you should be, especially if you are a fan of Afrobeat and the Talking Heads. So my number eight is, I want to say the final album from this band. Yeah, they're done. Yeah. I think it is. They're dumb. Uh, this is Girls with Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Um, the lead track off of this uh, album is one of the best songs I've heard of the decade. It's one of the happiest songs I've ever heard. Um, and the record itself, it's just. Girls was a perfect encapsulation of like blog rock and blog rock in the early 2010s. Um, they had an EP and a album titled i believe album that came out in 2009 or 2010 uh, and they were kind of like here and then just gone and this record i think is the best one that they made it's their most accomplished it is filled front to back with really catchy riffs really catchy songs um kind of falls in line with like the uh brooklyn early 2000s scene but then you've got songs like Vomit that are like seven minutes and just filled with ridiculously big guitar solos. And this definitely fit a mold for me in the early 2010s that I absolutely loved. And I think this album is still uh, holds up. I, I've listened to it recently and um, it's still a really good snapshot of this band and what they were capable of. And I, I wish we could have heard a couple other albums from them, though I don't know how well they, how, how great they would have been just knowing how much they put into the first few records. So for my number seven, I've got Florence and the Machine, Ceremonials. This was uh, their second album. The first one, Lungs, is the one that has probably Florence's best-known song, The Dog Days Are Over. I think Ceremonials is the better album in every way. Chris Martin would cut off every last lock of his hair to have a song as big and uplifting, as expansive as the first single, Shake It Out. This was um, kind of established. Florence the Machine is a pretty serious band that was willing to take some leaps. You know, she's a, a vibrant singer. She's got a huge set of pipes. And I don't know where they record this record, but it kind of sounds like it was recorded in like a gigantic abandoned church for all the stained glass and she could just blow it out and shatter the stained glass as it were. I know this album was produced uh, by Paul Epworth who was an um, indie rock producer who would go on to produce Adele and become super famous doing that. Before then he produced like Block Party and all these mid-2000s blog bands. This was kind of the start of him uh producing more expensive like British divas so to speak but yeah, this is a very good record it holds up the ones you put it after this one how big how beautiful how blue no how big how blue how beautiful I forget exactly that's also pretty good I was bored to death 
by her most recent album, the name of which I cannot even recall. Yeah, Ceremonials, good record. Yeah, this record was kind of everywhere in um, spring 2011, I want to say. I remember enjoying it quite a bit when it first came out. Yeah, it's got some great songs. It's, uh, I still think it's your peak album. Um, So my number seven is a record that uh, I think Dave's going to talk about a little bit later. This is an artist we both love a lot. It's Kurt Vile, Smoke Ring for My Halo. Um, This was, so I first heard of Kurt Vile about a year and a half earlier and loved Childish Prodigy, the record that came out in, I think, 2009. Um, This was definitely glossier. Um, Was this his first record for Matador? Uh, No, I think Childish Prodigy was. Okay. This one, he definitely... There's definitely more studio trickery throughout this. It sounds... It's, it's uh, much prettier around the edges, much softer. It definitely gets into domestic uh, uh, commenting and, and, and talking about his life as... I don't, I don't know if he was a dad yet at this point in time, but he was definitely inching towards that. I saw him a couple of times on this tour, and these songs just came through really well from a live standpoint. I listened to this record um, just prior to recording, and it's just, it's a beautiful album. Um, it's probably the prettiest record he's made, and well, I think I like Waking Up on a, Waking on a Pretty Days more than you did, um, I definitely think that there's an argument to be made that this is his strongest release until Bottle of Dead, but... Um, I don't know. I, I love this album, and, and I definitely uh, feel like this uh, kind of pointed the way forward in a really unique way for Kurt Vile, away from the garage and a little bit more into singer-songwriter, kind of commenting on the world in his own unique way. This album rules, and I'll have more to say about it later. <laughs> so, for my number six, White Denim, D. This is the best white denim album. Yes. I think it probably has um, what was the best white denim lineup. Because uh, the ones who've remained steady in the band was frontman James Petrali, bass player Steve Tarabecki. But at this time, they also had uh, second guitarist Austin Jenkins and the drummer Josh Block, both of whom Jenkins and Block have uh, since moved on. Now they are like the rhythm section for um, the soul singer... Oh, God, what's his name? Austin Jenkins and Josh Block, they left White Denim kind of to perform a bit of a rhythm-slash-production team. I know they're the backing band for uh, the modern soul singer Leon Bridges. They also did some really good production on uh, the most recent Nicole Atkins record. But when they were with White Denim, this album, D, I think it probably has the best set of White Denim songs. And at this point... They kind of sounded a bit like Fish in the sense that they were uh, this crunchy, almost like Woodstock-affiliated band, but at the same time, they had very much like a prog rock edge, which is almost sort of like a jam band crossed with something like Yes in terms of being able to do hairpin turns and turn a dime and some really interesting time signatures. Um... They actually, White Denim, with this formation of the band, put out a live record only on vinyl on Third Man Records back in 2011, which is just incredibly fiery. It's probably my favorite White Denim thing. So, well, I think they peaked in 2011. They're still a viable band today. They've got a completely different rhythm section than they used to have, but no, they're still putting out good songs, good records, and I think... Um, 
now that they've finally had a chance to settle into their latest lineup, they should be on the upswing pretty soon. Yeah, this record was huge in 2011. It did not make my list, but um, I definitely know all of my friends who are in other parts of the country who I didn't see for an extended period of time when I lived in Portland because I aforementioned did not have any money. <laughs> um, I, I feel like this record was like texted about more than probably any record in 2011. And uh, it definitely was more of a grower for me, but uh, I definitely hear it and I've launched back into 2011. All right. So number six for me is uh, Panda Bear's Tomboy. Um, this is a record that kind of fits the mood for me in 2011 in that uh, it's very atmospheric, uh, borders on ambient, and also um, was a bit of a grower record for me that I didn't listen to as much in years following. I've come around to it actually strangely in the last uh, two years. I've listened to it probably more than I ever did at any point in time, um, probably because I did not like Panda Bear's most recent record. Uh, uh this is the Grim, Grim Reaper, although he has a record that's coming out here in 2019. Probably has come out since we recorded this. But um, Tomboy was kind of the impossible follow-up as uh, the work that Panda Bear had been associated with over the last four years was Person Pitch from 2007 that was absolutely brilliant. Uh, Animal Collective's Meriwether Post Pavilion from 2009 that... I think if we were doing a list of the 2009 or the 2000s, uh, that would be on uh, probably both of our lists in our top 20s at least. Uh, and then uh, Fall Be Kind was the EP that followed it up in late 2009. That just three records in a row that were standout, hugely influential, and Tomboy is very small. Uh, it's very one note at times. Um, like I said, it's grown on me a lot in the last um, couple of years. There's virtually no samples on it, which was really strange for Panda Bear listeners at the time. But um, yeah, so I uh, I definitely have come around a lot more on Tomboy at the time. It was number six for me, and I think uh, it was kind of a fitting spot in the year. So for number five, I have a band that no longer exists. That band is called Wild Beasts, and this is their third album called Smother. This was a very quiet, very, very emo British album. Often it kind of got compared to Spirit of Eden era Talk Talk. And while it wasn't nearly as um, freeform or kind of like distant or remote sounding as that album, certainly Smother was a delicate record. And while it used pop song um, like formats, it was a bit precious. I think the first time I heard it, I thought, okay, these guys are kind of pretentious and kind of silly. Granted, the first song on the album, Lion's Den, definitely is the most theatrical song and kind of not entirely reflective of the rest of the album. But this is a very lyrical, very kind of quiet, emotional album that while I haven't put it on recently, at the time they were almost garnering like Radiohead comparisons. So I think the album that came out after that was also pretty good. And then album number five, which was produced by John Congleton, who's like St. Vincent's producer. At that point, you thought, okay, these guys kind of have to hang it up. And then hang it up, they did. But this is uh, something certainly worth 
revisiting if you are unfamiliar with it. It's uh, some other uh, wild beasts. <clears throat> so my number five is um, Juliana Barwick's The Magic Place, which is, um, I don't know if this was her debut, but it was the first record I was introduced to with her. Um, she's an ambient singer, songwriter who loops her voice and layers it in really unique ways. And, um, this came out in spring 2011. Um, for those of you who have not been to the Pacific Northwest in the springtime, the result of the rain that comes throughout November, December, January, February, March, early April, there are these days where you get sunshine for the first time, and like two days back to back, and it's the greatest feeling in the world. And um, I've never seen any place greener. I've never seen any place that just like looks more alive than biking through even just like the neighborhoods in Portland at that time of year. Um, and this record just perfectly complemented that. It's so peaceful. The cover is just a, um, uh, it's like a smattering of leaves uh, on a tree. It's like super green, super vibrant. And this was actually a record dedicated to um, a massive tree in front of her parents' farmhouse that she used to hide in and was called the magic place when she was growing up. It's just beautiful and uh, really summarized a lot of where my head was at and where musically I was in early 2011. Um, and she's released, I think, two or three records since then that um, are very much in the same formula as uh, as, as The Magic Place. Um, they, neither of them have hit me as hard as like songs like Envelope uh, on this album, but um, really just gorgeous, very simple uh like rewarding artist in terms of like the small changes that are made over the course of a five six minute song i get hurt confused with julia holter i know they tour together right i was gonna say yeah they tour together a lot um okay. julia holter definitely writes more songs and is a bit more avant-garde juliana barwick is um i mean i i, I don't know if they've ever recorded a song together but they could complement each other and really fantastic ways uh, if they ever did but um, yeah I would, I would love to see a show of the two of them that was a great bill that they did back in I think it was 2013 was the last time they toured together so I've got for my number four an album which Brian had previously talked about Kurt Vile Smoke Ring for My Halo still probably my favorite Kurt Vile album this is the one that basically introduced me to Kurt Vile I went back and fell in love with the Childish Prodigy album afterwards but to me, this is my favorite Kurt Vile record because I know a lot of it was recorded on acoustic. And then when he plays these songs live, I think he does uh, like and um, uses mostly electric guitar. But just the way it's really spare production, it's produced by John Agnello, who's uh, an old school guy. I think he did some early engineering on some Springsteen records. Makes everything sound really good. And I just remember listening to this album sitting on a megabus when I visit friends in Boston, especially the song On Tour, which is kind of about being on a bus or in a van staring out the window and just trying to imagine myself being in like a touring band. But, you know, this has a lot of songs of his that I would consider classics, like the song uh, Peeping Tomboy, the song Baby's Arms, which I think might have been used in a Citibank ad, but... You know, he's entitled to get that money. Um, no, it's just, it doesn't have the rangy 
electric guitar jams that he would explore on like waking on a pretty days and um believe him going down and even his most most recent album bottle it in but i think it like brian said it definitely pointed the way forward and kind of established him as a major artist to look for in the future and his latest bottle it in is fantastic it's probably my favorite of his since smoke ring for my halo but back in 2011 i said okay this guy's going places and clearly i was right so so my number four is from a kind of similar artist in that standpoint and he made his record in 2011 that was my favorite of his until this year and that's cast mccombs with the record wits end um i was past the cast mccombs record dropping the writ in summer 2008 when i was living up in alaska and it was one of my favorite records um at the time i think it was a 2007 release but um uh, one of my favorite records from that part of the decade, Catacombs, that came out in 2009, was a huge record for me that year. Um, and I greatly looked forward to this record. And it took me a very long time to get into it. It is a very slow, quiet, very contemplative album that once you get into it and once you kind of live in it for a little while, it is so rewarding. Um, it's definitely the best record he made until that point in time and definitely the best record he made until um 2019 uh but there's some just knock on your door buried alive saturday song i mean these are just really haunting there's a lot of weirdness on this record county line is one of his best songs he's ever written um i went and saw him i've seen him now three or four times i saw him in 2011 on this tour and he was great. The songs just came alive in the tour. And that was really what like clicked for me, how great the album was. And then um, I saw him in 2014, actually at the Empty Bottle in Chicago. And that was the first time I'd seen him really jam. And uh, he jammed out some of the songs from this record. I mean, played him for like, you know, 10, 12 minutes. And just hit me in a completely new way as well. So um Definitely love this record. This I know we featured the song Buried Alive in episode four, I want to say, the uh, MSG Carini. Uh, definitely one of my favorites that's held up over the last couple of years. That was episode four? I thought the MSG... Episode four, Episode yeah. Carini was the E major, uh, was the E minor stomp, right? E minor stomp and songs about oh, death okay. and dying. Oh, okay. All right. Buried Alive very much is. <laughs> right. You played some evil E minor songs and death and dying. Okay, okay. Gotcha. All right. Yeah. So my number three, much like my number three in 2010, kind of an album that's been lost to history a bit. This was the self-titled debut and I believe only album to date and probably will be the only album by Wild Flag, who are a super group of sorts in the sense that Wild Flag featured uh, Carrie Brownstein and Janet Weiss from Slater Kinney as well as Mary Timoney, who uh, was in the band Helium and the band more currently, she's in the band X-Hex. He's also done some solo work. I think it also had a, a keyboard player from the band The Minders, whose name escapes me at this moment. So when this came out, it was a big deal because when Slater Kinney broke up in 2006 after putting out their incredible album, Woods, still my favorite, uh, favorite Slater Kinney album, 
Carrie Brownstein wasn't really playing guitar. I think she was doing things like blogging for NPR or uh, I don't know exactly what. Portlandia hadn't happened yet, but she wasn't doing what she was put on this earth to do, which was completely shred the fuck out of her Rickenbacker and or Gibson SG. So when Wild Flag came around, it was kind of a big deal because you had, you know, Mary Timoney, who was a fantastic guitarist in her own right, joining forces with the engine room for Slater Kinney, Janet Weiss, and Carrie Brownstein. And it is a very good record. It's a really good, jagged, froggy power pop. Um, I saw them play live twice. Each time they were kind of beset by some technical difficulties, but the performance was good. And when I say lost to history, it's because Slater Kinney came back. So when you compare Slater Kinney to Wild Flag, it's kind of like comparing Coca-Cola to Diet Coke or comparing like Kentucky Fried Chicken Gravy to Boston Market Gravy. It's um, <laughs> Wild Flag scratches an itch, but it ain't nothing like the real thing. So when Slater Kinney came out in 2015 with their fan-fucking-tastic album, No Cities to Love, Wild Flag kind of retreated to, uh, to the background. But that's a good album. I actually put it on for the first time uh, in a while in anticipation of doing this podcast, and it uh, certainly holds up with some really good rock and roll. So my number three scratched me in a totally new way. Uh, this is Leland Kirby's Eager to Tear Apart the Stars. This was like the culmination for me. I, uh, well, actually, I should say there's, there's a record, in, I believe it's 2013 when we get to there, that it's the culmination for me of my ambient deep dive in the uh, early 2010s um this is just a fascinating uh just destructive beautiful apocalyptic record that um i have uh not listened to in a while in a long time because it's not available at all on streaming services but i listened to non-stop in the fall of 2011 and i ended up at my number three because at the time um an ambient record was going to end up at my number three 201 slot. This one uh, was just a big hit for me throughout the year. Just kind of blew my mind as I biked through the city, as I recovered from 12-hour shifts learning to cook food, and cutting myself with cooking knives and burning myself on hot stoves and getting yelled at and getting pans thrown at me and living a life that... Um, was a lot harder than whatever I'm doing right now. <laughs> and uh, I definitely did not have nearly as much free time and needed something to just completely zone out um, uh, and and just kind of like go to space with. And this was just the record to do that with. And the, the album title, Eager to Tear Apart the Stars, just like fully matched what I was feeling and what I was hearing. And my favorite band at the time, you know, uh, what they were doing, what Fish was doing at the time in terms of the storage jam, in terms of jams throughout the sun, late summer 2011. So definitely a big record for me that um, I would love to hear again. I uh, probably could just download it from some blog, but, um, you know, I'm stubborn like that. <laughs> you download it from some random blog and infect your computer with spyware. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so don't do that. My number two album of 2011... Fucked up. David comes to life. This is still the closest any band's ever come to making a melodic hardcore record that rivals Husker Du's Zen Arcade and New Day Rising. Basically, fucked up are like stadium hardcore in that 
They're kind of like a really aggro version of Foo Fighters with a, uh, a barking hardcore vocalist in Damon Abraham who takes his vocal inspiration from um, the 80s and early 90s Pacific Northwest hardcore band Poison Idea, who I think still kind of exists in some way, shape, or form. I think like the lead singer and j- just like a bunch of dudes still do Poison Idea. But anyhow, this album, it's a I think it's a double record. It's like 75 minutes long. It has this crazy rock opera story about a factory worker named David who meets a girl named Veronica. Then the girl gets killed, and he spends the whole album like crying about it and wondering what went wrong. But none of that really matters because you can't understand the lyrics anyway. But it's got huge hooks. It's produced really well. It jumps out of your speakers. You will scream along. It is cathartic. There's some of the stuff you want to shop from the rooftops. And um, Damien Abraham is actually known from having a, a very interesting podcast as well called uh, Turned Out a Punk, where he talks to various individuals about how they got into punk music. And uh, his knowledge of punk and hardcore is extremely vast. So the albums that um, they put out since David comes to life, all of which have been good. This is Still my favorite. I know they put out one a few months ago called uh, called Dose Your Dreams, which is very good. And they have a lot of Chinese Zodiac EPs. Like Fucked Up has like You're the Dragon, You're the Tiger, You're the Snake, all of which tend to be more proggy as opposed to uh, like hardcore music. Yeah, Fucked Up, David Comes to Life big-throated, melodic stadium hardcore record that makes you want to shot from the rooftops. Still listen to it today. Would recommend it highly. So my number two is a record I fully expect some um, sarcasm from Dave here about. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) This is Fleet Fox's Helplessness Blues. Um, yeah, this just kind of tapped into uh, everything sentimental and also nostalgic I was feeling during my 25th and 26th years on the planet. Um, there's just a lot of a lot of uh, kind of wondering and lost sense of youth throughout this record that I definitely felt at that point in my life, and from a career standpoint, from just kind of where I was at. And, uh, just really connected with this in a really profound way. I definitely like this more than um, what they put out in 2008. Um, I listened to it again recently, and it's interesting because it uh, it's not quite yet as out there as Crack Up was, which I really liked from 2017. Um, but you can definitely hear the band going that way. and I kind of wish that we had gotten... You know, that one or two more album evolution between Helplessness Blues and Crack Up, um, because we didn't hear from the band at all for the next six years. But I love this record. I love the title track. I love probably the first half of the album. It's one of my favorite things that was recorded in 2011. Uh, yeah. What were your thoughts on this? I don't dislike Helplessness Blues, but I love the first Fleet Foxes record. But the second one, it just seems like the dude has gotten so into, like, caricature. Like, doesn't the title track have that verse where he's like, If I had an orchard, I'd work till I'm sore. And you would wait (laughs) tables and soon run the store. 
I'm thinking like, no one listens to this band actually knows how to like fucking farm. This is just... <laughs> Fleet Foxes are selling like Pacific Northwest fantasies to like Williamsburg kids. That was... They, they, they <laughs> certainly, that is definitely true. I will not disagree with that at all. Like, um, come on, you guys don't know yes, how to there like... Was... If there was a world war and you guys had to grow your own Brussels sprouts, you couldn't do it. <laughs> there was definitely a lot of I want to be a farmer mentality when I lived in the Pacific Northwest that I have not heard in many other parts of the country. And um, yeah, this record definitely summarized that. I can see exactly what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, I think like I, I think when I wrote about that album, I said it reminded me of there's like a magazine you see in like restaurants called like edible and it's just like a bunch of like press releases compiled that you buy at like farm the table restaurants and there's always like a pictorial some guys got like an old timey mustache one like a 14 dollar cocktail that's kind of like the second flea fox's record is a guy with an old timey mustache pouring a 14 dollar cocktail but they can harmonize they should um there's not a lot of there's not a lot of drums in that record. That record could use more forward propulsion. Yeah, I think this was uh, Father John Misty's last record playing drums for them. My number one album is from Cut Copy. The album's called Zonoscope. Cut Copy are a fantastically fun dance band from Australia. We kind of have a lot in common with Hot Chip, which you mentioned in the last episode little bit like LCD sound system, although I think they sound more effortless than either of those bands. They draw from Erasure, they draw from New Order, they draw from Duran Duran, and to me, Zonoscope is their best album. It's their epic, it's got their longest songs. It's just one banger after another. I know a lot of people prefer the album that they put out in um, 2008 called In Ghost Colors. Again, like I'm fond of saying, I prefer Zonoscope, but if you wanted to argue that In Ghost Colors is better, I wouldn't think you were crazy. But just two back-to-back, extremely appealing dance pop records that kind of mining all the best aspects of all of my favorite dance rock bands, like New Order, like Erasure, um, if you even want to go a bit further back, talk about Yaz, which is the band that eventually birthed Erasure, so, yeah, again, an album that not a ton of people seem to talk about. When you hear about Cut Cop, you probably hear about the In Ghost Colors album. And the two albums that they put out uh, since Zonoscope being Free Your Mind wasn't that great. More recently, Haiku from Zero, much better. But in terms of stadium, I guess, festival-filling, disco ball headlining dance rock I mean cut copies on a scope is as good as it gets so my number one is um, another retreat to the wilderness record uh, one that has held up a ton for me I listen to this record all the time still and I love it uh, Bon self-titled record Bon Iver. Uh, you know coming off of uh, what is it Forema Forever Ago is that what the, his first album yeah um, that was a huge hit in 2008. That record did not do very much for me at the time, though I've gone back and enjoyed it. Um, I didn't have a ton of... I don't know. I didn't really expect much from this record. I don't even think I listened to it for a couple of months after it came out. And I remember 
it hitting me really hard. There's a, there's a theme developing here with 2011 records of I was on my bike listening to this record for the first time, and I was biking through fall in Portland, and uh, it just hit me on a thousand levels. And um, I loved the direction he took his music. I loved the synthesizers on the record. I love the what he's done with his voice. I love how like the songs just bleed into each other, and uh, it's definitely one of those records that. If I put it on, it's going on the entire way through. Uh, it's never, I'm never really going to like pause midway through it. Um, and uh, it's great for driving. It's great for kind of late night, hanging out, having a couple beers out on like a dock in Wisconsin, uh, which I've listened to it in that environment multiple times. And uh, yeah, it just really affected me in a heavy way in 2011 and it's continued for me here this was the one he put out after he became friends with Kanye right yeah cause he was on um, Twisted Fantasy like uh, Lost in the World he was on Twisted Fantasy and then yeah yeah and then this came out about 6 or 7 months after that came out right cause I remember Twisted Fantasy there was a like intimate release show at the Bowery Bar Room here in Manhattan that Bon Iver was at and he was just this like goofy white guy on the stage trying to like keep up with Kanye and like dance but this is um yeah, yeah Soul Title's a good record it wouldn't be my top 10 but I definitely um I'm not as big a Bon Iver fan as you are but I appreciate that album as being very good yeah this is definitely my favorite of his and um you know similar to Fleet Foxes we didn't hear anything from him for five years uh 2000 late 2016 was when 22 million came out and I would have loved to have really heard the like subtle uh, evolutions following this record because he kind of crossed into a really unique plane of music and um, I think it's great the songs still hold up live and you know if you there, there's definitely a clear line for me from uh, the National High Violet that was one of my that was my favorite record of 2010 to this record in 2011 that um, really kind of showcased this like singer songwriter if you like kind of twist the uh um, the sides of, of a song and kind of see what else is out there. It's uh, definitely something I still listen to a lot. And that's where our heads were at in 2011. So come back. There will be a future bonus episode, which we tackled 2012. That's coming up next. But until then, drink your carrot juice, eat your Wheaties, and be like fleet foxes and work in that orchard until your hands are sore. And then we will go beyond the pond.
Osiris.